Last week we, uh, we finished chapter 17, which was about the counterfeit bride, uh, Satan's bride, the false church. And today we're going to be looking at another dimension of Babylon, the commercial dimension of Babylon. And I know it's quite lengthy, but it's such a, um, there's so much information in it. And I think if I just begin teaching without reading it, it may be a little confusing. So I'm going to give you a, uh, an opportunity to hear it and to read along with me. And then, uh, then we'll pray and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I'm not a widow and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and of olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. 
Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a bridegroom and a bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your justice. And we thank you that nothing on this earth escapes your attention. And God, we pray that as we study this passage that refers to the future, a time when I believe the church will already have been raptured. God, we ask that in spite of the fact that we won't be here, that you would put on our hearts, God, that we would rescue those as from fire who are around us who don't know you yet, that they won't have to go through these terrifying times. Father, we also pray that for those of us that believe in you and know you and love you, that you would teach us, God, how to apply the truths in this book and in this passage this morning. And Holy Spirit, once again, I come to you and I surrender myself to you and I acknowledge before my brothers and sisters my woeful inadequacy to present your word, God, apart from you. I know that even though I'm well prepared, God, unless you're working Holy Spirit that they will fall my words will fall in front of me and Father I know this is your flock and this is your church and I pray that you would feed your flock and your church this morning for their edification and for your glory and we pray all these things in Jesus name and everyone said Amen Amen. Leo Tolstoy has written a classic story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Some of you might be familiar with it. It's a story about a peasant farmer named Pahon who wasn't satisfied with what he had. He received an offer from a wealthy landowner that was almost too amazing to even believe. This was the deal. For a thousand rubles, he could have as much land from this wealthy landowner as he could walk in a day. So he could walk four corners of as big a piece of property he wanted and it would be his for a thousand rubles. And this man was just ecstatic. He couldn't believe the potential. He wasn't a, uh, a young man. He wasn't an old man. But he thought, you know, I can walk a huge tract of land in a day. So from sunrise to sunset was the deal. The only catch was is that if he failed to complete the circuit by sunset, he would not only not get the land, but he would forfeit his thousand rubles. He understood. They had an agreement. They shook hands. So off Pahone goes early the next morning, crack of dawn. He's out the door. He sees the night before he scoped it out. He realizes, okay, there's that peak in the distance and far off in the distance he sees another peak and and he sees a peak over here and he says, I'm going to get this whole valley. And so he starts out early. He's got some provisions with him and he goes. And he's greedy. He wants a lot of land. And he knows to travel all of that land, he's going to have to move. So he starts out at a very fast walk, kind of 
sometimes jogging, sometimes walking quickly. And he makes it to his first point. Along the way, this is undeveloped land. And so he's going over briars and trees and he's getting all scratched up and cut and bruised. By midday, he was tired, but he kept going, covering more and more ground. By late afternoon, he realized that he was in deep trouble, that he had been too greedy and that he may not be able to finish the circuit. So he began to run and run and run and run trying desperately to get back to a starting point so that he would gain the land and not lose his money. As the sun began to set, he just began to see in the distance the starting point. His servant was waiting there for him, cheering him on. He could see him cheering him on. And he was gasping. I mean, this guy was hurting big time. He had way overextended himself. He was exhausted. All his provisions were gone. His water was, was finished. And he was gasping for breath. His heart was pounding and he was calling on every bit of strength left in him. And with his last bit of effort, he crossed the line just as the sun began to set. He had made it. And his servant went wild because, of course, the servant is now wealthy too because he belongs to a wealthy landowner. But shortly after crossing the line, he collapsed and blood began to seep out of his mouth and he died at the starting point of this great venture, a venture of greed. His servant mourned and buried him right there on the spot. Pahon wanted the world, but six feet from head to toe was all that he really needed. Jesus talked about this very type of thing when he was preaching to the masses in Luke 9 when he said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit his very life. And I think that many of us are like Pahon. We may not like to admit it, but as I prayed about these things and even considered my own life, I have to confess there are some parts of me that are like Pahon. I think in our culture, we are all to some degree inflicted with that greed of this servant who had his own land, who had a servant, who had enough in life but wasn't satisfied with that and wanted more. So we end up spending the better part of our lives accumulating things and goods and wealth only to discover that we've sometimes forfeited and oftentimes forfeited the things that matter most. Our relationship with God, our marriages, raising our children. And in the end, all that we really need is just a very small plot God has given every one of us enough. There isn't a person in this room that doesn't have enough. We all have enough. But many of us, at various times, want more. And it's a trap. And it's a trap that the world is falling in now and it will increase and get worse in the end times. And what we're looking at in this chapter in Revelation is we are looking at a world that, first of all, has lost its spiritual moorings in chapter 17, They've fallen for the false church. The false church has become everything to everyone with a message for no one from Christ and so polluted by the thinking of the world that we've become consumers to such a degree that we have forfeited the best part of our life, some of us our best years, accumulating and storing up very, very little in the way of eternal things that God says He will always protect. 
So in the last days, there is going to be this tremendous drive, and we're seeing it here in chapter 18, to accumulate more and more and more. And the hub of this accumulation will be the city of Babylon that we're looking at in chapter 18. Now John begins by saying that he saw another angel coming out of heaven, down from heaven, and he had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. I mean, this was an an awesome sight as John watched this angel descend. And with a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons, evil spirits, and every unclean and detestable bird. The angel's repetition, oftentimes repetition in the Bible, is for emphasis. It's to, it's to announce the surety of these events to take place. But it also may be a reference to the two dimensions of Babylon. The spiritual dimension that we looked at last week, and now the commercial dimension. The, the lust for more. And so this angel cries out these events that will take place in the future. Now the question is, what is Babylon? Well, some people believe that Babylon, in, reference, in the scriptural references here, means an actual city. And I talked about this last week. It would be in modern-day Iraq. That's where the original Babylon was. And many scholars believe that, that this Babylon will be rebuilt in the final days. And I mentioned last week that uh, this isn't a big stretch. Iraq is already rebuilding Babylon. It's, it's being rebuilt as a tourist, uh, a tourist draw. And so they, they don't really have a lot in Iraq, unless you like oil fields and things of that nature, if you like seeing things go like this. Uh, but uh, what, what people are going to come for is Babylon. The ungodly world is going to be drawn to this, to this reconstructed temple, to man's rejection of God. And so many people believe it will be a literal city. Some others believe that it is symbolic and not a literal city but symbolic of a system of capitalism and commercialism that's God-rejecting and that is, is man-centered. And frankly, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe it's both. I think it will be a literal city and I believe it will be rebuilt in Iraq. But I also believe it's going to be symbolic not just of that area but the lust of man for more and to put their hope and confidence in material things. Now John tells us that, that this is such a wicked place, so evil, so immoral that it becomes the hangout for every evil spirit. I mean, every evil spirit in the world is just going to want to go there because it's like, man, that's the place to go if you're an evil spirit. That is the happening place for wickedness. That's where an evil spirit can just completely run haywire and loose and be completely invited and accepted. The city of Babylon. Every evil spirit, every demon, every unclean and detestable bird will find a home there. Now we're told why in verse 3. For the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries and the kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. I won't spend much time on this except to just review and say that we've already been told in Revelation 14.8 that the world is going to drink the wine of her adultery. In other words, they're going to partake and have fellowship with the corruption of Babylon. The kings are going to commit adultery. We talked about the separation of church and state. There will be no... It'll be such a a blend of the two, both feeding off the power of the the other. And we talked about how last week that the spiritual dimension of, of Babylon will be destroyed by the beast when he is finished with her. When he's gotten what he needed out of her, then she will be destroyed. But now we have the merchants of the earth growing rich off of her and... It's interesting, this word merchants basically means the, the super rich, the world's great deal brokers. 
So commercial Babylon with its worship of money and power will promote and push an unrestrained lust for luxury and sensuality. It's going to promote a philosophy that we're already familiar with, that happiness, significance, security, and fulfillment are found in the abundance of the things that a man or a woman can acquire in this life. What is happening then is already happening now. I don't think I probably even need to point this out, but forgive me, I will. This is, just, this is America right now. We've perverted the word of God. We've evacuated it of the true message of gospel. We don't teach the word of God very much anymore. We certainly don't apply its principles in our, in our culture. We are a post-Christian society. And we are consumed with acquiring. And forgive me, but we are all guilty of this. If you live in the United States, we are almost, by nature of the fact that we live here, we're guilty. We've, we've acquired so much. Most people in the world live extremely simply. They would love to have what we have, but they live simply. And God blesses them. And God works with them. And we consume a huge amount of the world's resources. I'm not a socialist. I'm not a communist. But I'm saying that there's something in this text that we need to hear. And that our lives should not be driven by the lust for acquiring more and more and more when God has already given us so much at the expense of the investment in the kingdom of God. That's the key. Nothing's wrong with having. Nothing's wrong with God blessing us. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But if it comes at the expense of the kingdom of God, then we have lost our way and we have fallen into the trap of commercial Babylon. So I want to warn you, and I'm going to share a couple of other things with you along this line to encourage us to be a church that's separated unto God for His purposes and His glory. Now in verse 4, John hears another angel say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. And so God is calling His people out of Babylon. It's actually, there are actually eight occasions in the, in the Bible where God calls His people out of Babylon. Sometimes it's used literally out of Babylon and sometimes it's used figuratively. But in every case, it's to ask His people, please, please don't waste your life pursuing the things that don't last. And He calls His people out and we are His people and you are His flock. And He wants to protect you and wants your life to count. And so He tells His people, come out of her. Remove yourself from the whole agenda that she has that's being marketed so aggressively by the media and the world. The word come out is actually in the imperative. It's a command. It means do it now. Don't delay. I'm reminded of um, Lot. Everybody remember Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah? Even if you haven't read the Bible, you've heard Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Lot was a little bit like Pahon. He had a lust when he saw the green fertile valleys of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Abraham gave him the choice, hey, take whatever you want, I'll take what you don't want. And Lot took that fertile green valley, but along with it, he also took a corrupt culture. And he became not just a, a, a benefactor of it, he became a part of it. He became one of the, the city leaders. And God came to him and said, I'm going to destroy this place because of its terrible wickedness that's come up to me in the prayers of the saints. 
And so Lot says, you know, he has this deal with God. Asks him like five or six times, you know, well, what if there's, you know, 50 people or 40 people or 30 people? What if there are 10 people? And God says, I will not destroy it if there are even 10 godly people. Well, there weren't even 10 godly people. And so the angels grab Lot and say, come with us now and bring your family because we're going to destroy this place, but we can't do it until you leave. Which, by the way, tells me something about the heart of God regarding the rapture that he doesn't want us to suffer. Even if they're 10, he says, no, I don't want to, I want to take you out. I don't want to harm my flock, my bride. And so he takes Lot out. But Lot is like dragging him, you know, he's like, oh, I love this place, you know. I, I, don't, I know it's bad. I know it's wrong. I know the things. I, but God, I love my money and all the things I've got. I mean, can I take some of it with me? And God, the angels say, there's not time. You must flee now. And so the angels, I, the mercy of God to me is incredible. If it had been me, I'd say, stay if you want. You know, the whole place goes up. But no, the angel grabs his hand and the hand of his family members and actually pulls him out forcefully because of God's love for Lot. Now we know the rest of the story. They left and Lot's wife, even though she was yanked out of there by the grace of God, her heart was still back in Sodom and Gomorrah. All her frilly things and all of her home decorating and all of the years spent getting the house just the way she wanted it, buying and saving and scrimping and working to make that place just perfect. Oh, so beautiful. It's the nicest house in the whole town, you know. When they have open houses, you know how they have open houses here on Kauai? Their house was on the list to go see. You could pay money to go in and see their house. It was so beautiful. And she didn't want to leave it. So she's fleeing, being drug along, and God says, don't look back. And we know what happened is that she looked back and was judged and became a pillar of salt, a waste land. So God is calling us to come out. I think that message is appropriate for us. I've wrestled with this all week. I've been praying about this all week in regard to our own family. And I want you to wrestle with it. And I'm not speaking these things to make anyone feel badly but I am speaking what God's word says and the warning that God has for us that we make sure that we're not wasting our lives and that you're not wasting your life because this world is already being built on the foundation of the Babylon to come we are living in the midst of it but we've become so inoculated to it we've become so accustomed to it and we actually enjoy it to such a degree that we have allowed its influence to permeate even our Christian homes in the things that we allow ourselves to see, in the things that we give ourselves to, in the, the work, 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 work mentality. Yeah, we'll put things off, we'll take care of those things later, but now is my time to make money so that we can have those things later on that we want to have. And the best years of our lives are being lost for the kingdom of God. In 1 John, the same writer who wrote this revelation said in chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, 
But the man who does the will of God lives forever. God gives us a choice. He's telling us, and I'm communicating it to you as best I can, as your brother and your friend and your pastor, is that God lays before us every day a choice where we will invest ourselves, what we will give ourselves to. And God's word repeatedly tells us that if you give it for material things, you're wasting your life. If you give it for eternal things, it will be stored and kept and preserved and it will be, you'll be rewarded greatly. And it will be for His honor and glory and the expansion of His kingdom and things that matter and last and your friends and family, you will have been faithful in proclaiming the gospel. But, you know, just like God, He never forces His agenda. He tells us again and again, the things I'm telling you, you aren't ignorant of these things and neither am I. But we need to hear it again. We need to be reminded of what counts and what matters in life. Now, does this mean we're supposed to live as ascetics? You know, just in poverty, give everything away and go live in on, you know, some hovel somewhere? No, it doesn't mean that. There were rich Christians in the early church. Did Paul rebuke them? No, he didn't. God blesses. There's some people that God, for whatever reason, just chooses to bless with large amounts of money. And then there's some that are in the middle and some that have less. But everyone has what they need. Listen what, to what uh, Paul tells Timothy regarding the rich who are believers. Command those who are rich in this present world. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. Okay, that's the problem. Nothing's wrong with wealth, but if you're putting your hope in it and it's the focus of your life, that's the problem. He says, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God wants us to enjoy life. He doesn't want us to, you know, live without. He wants to give us. We're his kids. He loves us. You know, he wants us to have what we need. And, and if you're like me, I found that he gives us more than what we need. Always. If you're following God, he always seems to give more than what we even ask for or think, as the scripture teaches. But he says to them, command them to do good with their money, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Listen to what it says. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see Paul's heart? He says there's nothing wrong with money. In fact, God gives it to us to enjoy. But if your hope is in it or your investment is entirely there, you will have wasted your life and played the fool. So God says, come out of her. Don't share in her plague. Share means to fellowship or partner with. Instead, we're to be servants of God, having nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And these plagues are a reference to the seven bold judgments that we've been studying in chapter 16. Now, we're told in verse 5 that her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. This word piled up is interesting. It actually means glued together in the Greek. So you've got these these sins like brick upon brick upon brick upon brick piling up to heaven. It's, it's a clear allusion to the Tower of Babel. And so men's sins pile up, are glued together in a sense of permanence, a, a, a resistance against God, an unwillingness to change. And God says, in spite of that, not only didn't their tower reach heaven, 
But God's judgment supersedes it because in Jeremiah 51.9, regarding this time of Babylon, it says that judgment will reach to the sky. It rises as high as the clouds. And God has a way of remembering things. I'm, I'm so glad I'm a Christian, I have to tell you. I'm glad I've been forgiven. The Bible says that for us who know Him, He's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, thrown it in the deepest part of the sea, never to be remembered again. God chooses to not remember but he also chooses to remember the sins of the ungodly. So from man's standpoint, people think, hey, God doesn't see what's happening. God doesn't seem to care. I've been doing this kind of stuff for years and he's never even said boo about it. Look how wealthy I am. Look what God has done, man. He's, I'm killing it. And I'm wicked. And I know it. And I'm proud of it. But God remembers. He will not be mocked. In Revelation 16, 19, we're told that he will remember Babylon the great and give her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now this angel also calls for judgment against Babylon. It says in verse 6, Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, listen, listen to the pride and the arrogance here. She says, I sit as queen. I'm, I'm, the, I'm it. There is no one but me. I'm the only thing happening in this whole world. I've got supremacy over everything and every one. And from a human standpoint, she'll be right at that point. She says, I'm not a widow. Well, of course she's not a widow. She's in bed with everybody in the world. She's an, a, a corrupt adulteress. She doesn't need a husband. She's got millions of husbands. She's polluted herself. And she says, I will never mourn. Wow, is she in for a shock. It says in verse 8 that in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death and mourning and famine and she will be consumed by fire. I mean, this is amazing. We're told that these plagues will take place in a day. The, the suddenness and shocking dimension of how quickly this happens will, will amaze and astound the whole world. That's why... We're going to see in a few minutes grown men crying because of their losses at what happened with Babylon. There's a parable that Jesus told about a, a rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 19. You know this story if you've been a Christian any length of time. There was a, a man who had uh, wealth. He had property. He had everything he needed. He was kind of like Pahon. He had everything he needed and more. But he had this bumper crop. God really blessed him this one year. And he thought to himself, man, I just can't believe it. Look at all this grain. I just, man. And his neighbors are like, wow, I can't believe what God has done. And, and he thinks to himself, wow, you know, if I could keep this up for just a couple of years, I could retire. And I could sit back and do nothing the rest of my life except party. And so he says to himself, I'm going to tear down these barns. They're great, they're wonderful, but, and they're, there's nothing wrong with them, but they're not big enough. So he tears down all his barns and he builds bigger barns. And as he's finished the task of building bigger barns, listen to what the Lord says to him. You fool. Wow, that's a nice... <laughs> mm. You know, God doesn't really pull any punches, does he? That's not a very... Uh, that's, it's not something you want to hear. God, it's bad enough if you hear somebody else saying, you fool. 
But when God says you're a fool, who knows everything about the truth and what really is, that's really bad. He says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And listen to what he says, because this is important for us to understand and to know and to apply. Listen. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Do you hear what he's saying? Look at the, look at the man. God blessed him with, a, with an overabundant crop. And so what did he think? Did he think, God, thank you. I want to use this extra crop for your glory. No, he thinks, man, I want to store this up so I can sit back and relax. So I won't even have to trust God. I won't have to pray. I'll have everything I need. I'll be independent. And so God on that very night required his life and everything was gone and he had failed to invest in the things that last and matter. And it was all given to other people, probably the government, 50% or more, (laughs) if you live in the United States. So the question is, how can we be spiritually rich? This man was a fool. Anybody really want to be a fool? You guys, anybody want to raise your hand and say, man, fool, yeah, hey, that sounds like a way to go. No, I I think we all want to be considered wise. In fact, unfortunately, all of us think we're the wisest person around, probably. That's our problem, is that, you know, we can benefit from each other's insight, but the problem is sometimes we think we got it, we got it all together, we know everything. And so our problem isn't that we think we're fools, sometimes we think we're too wise. We're wiser than we are. I'm assuming you want to be wise and not foolish. I know that's what I want. I don't want to waste my life and I don't want to be a fool. And so Matthew 6 Verse 9 through 21, or 19 through 21, tells us how we can be wise. It says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is Jesus speaking. Did you hear what I said? Don't store up treasures on earth. How many of us have just loads of, you know, all kinds of money? Now, some of us do, some of us don't. But we're all trying, aren't we, to store up money? We're trying to store up all these things. There's nothing wrong with planning. But the problem is, is that if we're storing it up and that we're not being rich toward God in, in, in His work, then we're, we're fools. We've played the fool. And so he says, don't store it up on earth where moths, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Some of you are, are fairly young here. You're all young. You all look beautiful. Um, I got my wild hairs going. I told you about that last week. And I, I know, I got ears, ear hair is coming. It's just around the corner. I'll be shaving my ears soon. Um, <laughs> some of you are quite young. And all of us are young at heart. You have a choice right in front of you, right now today, to decide what you're going to give your life to. But whatever you give your heart to, whatever you decide, whether you make a conscious decision or just kind of float along in life, you, your heart will be captured by what you give yourself to, whether you want it to or not. You might say, oh God, you know, my heart's totally yours. I'm completely given to you. But if your heart and your actions and your life is focused on acquiring and maintaining and gathering and collecting for what, who knows what, for retirement. I mean, we've got insurance for everything. I had a, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's helpful at times, but I had a, a gentleman, and I probably shouldn't even say this, but um, uh, try to sell me lawyer insurance. You know, so if I ever get sued, that I'm insured against that. 
I mean, we really do have insurance for everything. And I'm sure for some people that's really helpful. So I'm not mocking that, but I'm just saying we have insurance for everything. But the Bible says that whatever we give ourselves to, it will capture our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you treasure this world, your heart's going to be there and you're going to not really do very much for the kingdom of God. But if your heart is really for God, if your heart is really Christ, if it belongs completely to Him, you're going to be like gangbusters storing up treasures in heaven, doing things for His glory. You're going to have all kinds of time for the kingdom of God and the mindset of a godly believer, in my estimation, is that your job is a place that provides you an opportunity to witness. It's not money. It's not about your career. It's about witnessing. God strategically inserted you there to be a witness. Secondarily, it provides an income for you to have enough so that you can do more outside of work. So that you can give and support different ministries and missions and go on short-term missions trips or do wonderful works of God and bless people anonymously. And, and just be like, man, you're just, your family's thinking, how, who are we going to bless this week, family? Let's pray together who we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna minister to financially. See, that's the mindset of a, of a godly, true believer. Now, famine and mourning and death are going to overtake this woman. I'm going to have to pick up the pace here. We find three categories of people who are just astounded by these events. And I'll just summarize them. One are the kings of the earth. We've already talked about them last week. The second are the merchants, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And then thirdly, these traders, and, uh, as in sea captains and those that uh, are actually middlemen in these transactions. They're going to stand off, every one of them, and bemoan. And I, I won't go over this repeatedly, but there are three passages that are almost identical, bemoaning the loss of this great, capitalistic city. You know, it's interesting. The world in the end is not going to be communist or socialist. It's going to be so capitalistic. It will be, it's going to be like uh, Ronald Reagan's fantasy, you know, come true. That every nation in the world is capitalist and probably democratic to some degree until these end days when this false prophet will come up. But it's going to be capitalism to a fault in a rejection of God. And these kings and these incredible leaders, these these power brokers, these deal makers, these people that have huge amounts of money are going to fall apart. They're going to weep. I mean, it's, it's hard to even believe. They're, in the Greek, it doesn't mean that they're going to go, boo-hoo. It's, they're going to wail. They're going to fall apart because they've lost everything. I remember some years ago, um, a few years ago, I was in high school, And I had a friend that was very wealthy. I mean, his dad was a millionaire. He was a stock trader. Uh, kind of what we would consider like a day trader today. That's what he was doing back in the, in the early 70s, middle 70s. And he drove a Cadillac Eldorado. He, had, he brought sports cars. He dropped his son off. He gave his son a Ferrari. I mean, it was just endless. I mean, it, I liked it because the guy was my friend. We'd go cruising in his Ferrari and everything. But uh, I thought, man, this guy is just filthy rich. I mean, he, gold jewelry. I mean, he was, he was so luxurious in everything that he had. He suits, his kid wore the best. I mean, it was just, he was filthy rich. He was filthy stinking rich. And he was a happy man. But I'll never forget the day that I saw my friend being driven up by his father. Pulled up in some beat up old Datsun. Rusty. This guy looked like death warmed over. The father. The father. And I saw his son get out. 
No gold jewelry, no Rolex watch, nothing. And I said, what happened? And he said, my dad made a bad trade. And he lost everything. In this final day, multiply that worldwide. And that's the condition of the world. Men who thought they were riding so high and had the world by the tail will lose everything. And the Bible says in one hour. The things that you're storing up in life, the things that you're accumulating, and I'm a, you know, my, my mind is, is, I'm a business-minded person. I, I, I majored in speech and business when I was in college. I wanted to go into business. I did go into business uh, for the first uh, four years after school. Had my own business. I love business. I, I, you know, I know how to make money. I know how to do that. And there's even been times as a believer where I wanted to make money. I wanted to make a lot of money. I've made a lot of money in the past. I know how to do it. You know, for those of you that know how to make money, you know if you know how to do it once, you can do it over and over and over. It's not hard. And in me, even as a believer, even, even as a pastor, there have been moments where I was just like, oh, you know, I just love business. It's not the money. I just love the challenge of making something work and happen. And so I'm like driven to that. And maybe some of you are like that as well, to some degree or another. And we've been collecting things and insulating ourselves in such a manner that we don't even really have to trust God for our daily bread. It used to be that people would pray it at a meal because, thank you God that you gave us this bread today. But now for us, it's just like, you know, we, we kind of do it not even realizing why we're thanking God for the food. We just think, well, you're supposed to pray at the dinner table. But the reason that people used to pray is because they were thanking God for that daily bread. That bread that God gave them that day. But we've become so insulated that we've got weeks and weeks of food, all of us do, in our house. And all these people are going to stand off in, in horror. And one thing I want to encourage you to, to realize, whether you like this or not, I don't really like it either, but it's the truth, is that whatever you store up, whatever man can make, whatever you can build, whatever you can create, God can take away in one hour. In one hour, everything you have can be gone. I don't need to detail the various ways that that can happen. You can imagine. In one hour, everything that you hold dear can be gone. And then what? What will you be left with? Well, if you're rich in the kingdom of God, you'll throw up your hands and say, Wow, that went up fast. (laughs) Thank God I've got most everything reserved in heaven because I've stored it there. Thank God. I just was, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I just heard about this, um, you know, there have been a number of catastrophes worldwide, and uh, this woman was um, just recently on the news was bemoaning that she said, everything is just gone, just like that. My, my house, everything, I just lost everything in that fire. Everything. My whole life is gone. Everything. For a godly believer, that's not the case. They just said, well, pfft. God gives, God takes away. Lord, you'll provide for us. We'll have enough to be able to continue investing in the eternal things of God. We're told that the believers, in contrast to all of these movers and shakers financially in Babylon, listen to what in verse 20 we're told. Rejoice over her, O heaven. That's God's... You know, is, is it that we delight in wickedness in, in the sense that people are hurt? No, I don't delight in that. As I read this, I, I'm, I'm moved because I realize the destruction that's coming. 
But I am very glad that there will finally be justice. Aren't you? That there will finally be justice. And so the heavens are told to rejoice. They're commanded to rejoice. The saints and the apostles, God has judged her for the way that she treated you. And then we have an illustration, a graphic illustration. This mighty angel throws this millstone into the water to illustrate the rapid decline and destruction of Babylon. It was going to happen just like that. As a result, everything's going to change. I don't need to read you the list there. Everything joyful, everything wonderful about life that God has given is going to be stripped away and it won't be happening anymore. Now we're told in verse 23 why this is. In, if you're reading NIV translation, it's actually, um, there's a word that's actually missing in the Greek that says, For your merchants were the world's great men. So it's identifying the reason for all of these punishments. For the world's great men were the merchants. Now, what does this mean? Well, the world's great men are these people who are running the show economically. Money and luxury is their God. People with money are the ones who will be in charge of society. Character, righteousness, and integrity will absolutely mean zippo, nothing, a big goose egg. Sound familiar? There have been polls over the last five years in our own country that people say that the character of our national leaders doesn't matter nearly as much as how we're doing economically. You've heard that. That's going to be the swan song in this last day except it'll be worse. What the leaders do won't matter at all as long as we all get ours. That will be the attitude of the world. And I have to warn you, I believe it's already the attitude in the United States. And I have to also say, to my own conviction as well, I believe it's infiltrated the church and not just some church out there somewhere. I think it's infiltrated our own fellowship, our own hearts. And we need to be very careful and to make a choice to be wise instead of foolish. We're also told that she had magic spells and by them all the nations were led astray. This word magic is pharmakia where we get our word pharmacy from. It has to do with drugs and potions. It has to do with wickedness and I just want to say that if you are addicted to some sort of foreign substance like pot or cocaine or heroin or you're an alcoholic, these things fall under the heading of pharmakia. And they are abhorrent to God. And without going into a lot of detail, they are even, uh, it's even possible if we persist in that lifestyle to be excluded from the kingdom of God because of those rebellious sins against God. They are demonic in their background, demonic in their nature. And God says, come out from that so that you won't experience what's coming. And he finally tells us that the city, the other reason that it's being destroyed is that the city contained the blood of God's people. Chapter 18. Pretty powerful. In closing, I just want to say that there's little doubt that we're in the last days. Soon our labor will be over. In fact, when we were worshiping here this morning, I was just really just overcome with thankfulness that God is coming back for me soon. I'm working hard, and I know you're working hard too. We are endeavoring to build the kingdom of God and to bring Him glory. And shortly he will come for us and he will reward us and we will be in his presence forever and ever and whatever we have done for Christ and his kingdom will last. Can't say that about anything on this earth. But whatever you do for him will last. 
And so can I encourage you as my friends and my brothers and sisters, my fellow journeyers in our walk with God, make every single moment count. There is not time to waste. I want you to be wise. I want to be wise with you. I want you to spur me on in wisdom and I want to spur you on in wisdom. We need to learn the lesson of the rich young ruler and be very careful that we don't all of a sudden find out that life was cut short and we anticipated all these years after having fulfilled our dreams to do God's work. There are no guarantees. In an hour, it can be over. Pahon learned this lesson in a very brutal way. He wanted the world and he thought he was going to get it, but in the end, he really only needed six feet of ground. You only need six feet of ground. And if you get cremated, you don't even need that. Make your life count. Make it count. You will have no regrets if you live for Christ in His glory, in His praise, in His purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning and we honor You. And God, we want to respond to Your call that we would come out. We pray, Lord, that You would teach us this lesson of chapter 18. God, it's right in front of us. I don't think anybody has missed what I've said this morning, what Your Word has taught. And God, You've convicted, I think, many of us. And many of us need to go home as families and we need to begin to rethink our whole lives. We need to think about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we expend our resources, and what we're aiming at in life. And Father, we ask You to forgive us for being caught in the web of the commercialism of our culture. And Lord, we don't want to be caught anymore. We don't want to be foolish and store up things only to have an hour come when everything will be lost and we will grieve and weep and mourn because we made the wrong choices. So Holy Spirit, thank you for this time and and thank you that you are not rebuking us, but you're calling us out. And you're saying, come out and walk in the abundance of life eternal and make your life rich not only in this life, but in the life to come. Lord, we worship you and thank you for the many good things you've done. Thank you that every man and woman and young person here is cared for. We have more than we need. Father, help us to shift our attention to the eternal things of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.